Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Welcome, listeners. Today, we are excited to tee up for you yet another episode of I Am Speaking Expert Voices. This time, with an amazing physician and one of Kosha's dear friends, Dr. Javier Gomez. Yes. Uh, Javier is from Colombia. And you'll hear that I had to correct him on where he was born, which I think is really funny. Um, I had to do a couple of weird corrections during this, uh, during this episode, but he is incredibly charismatic. He is so smart, but the way that he speaks is so approachable and accessible. He's a cardiologist at a nonprofit hospital that serves underprivileged, under, underserved communities in Chicago, Cook County Hospital. A long time ago, a while ago, we've been friends for some time. He was talking to me and Brian, my husband, about how he talks to certain patients. Because of that conversation, I, I knew that he needed to be on this series. I knew he would be perfect for it, given his background and given the patients that he sees. And uh, we joke a little bit about how um, our coach and I, our dad was also working at Cook County Hospital in the 70s and how both our dad and Javier have ruined ER and medical drama shows for their families <laughs> because, yeah. because of their experiences in hospitals. But Cook County Hospital is huge. It's a 450 bed teaching hospital, right? So it's not just a service hospital, it's a teaching hospital. They have residents, they have fellows, and they serve literally a global community. Not only do they serve you know, immigrants who are here, but they serve people who happen to be here from you know, other countries. It is a, it's a global healthcare center. And what was really, for me, exciting to hear, because this is the first time I get to talk to him, exciting to hear is how he and his team have really incorporated cultural understanding into medical service, right? How they are oriented to really caring for people who are sick, not providing healthcare. And it really did harken back to those old days of doctors with brilliant bedside manner. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the way that he, you know, teaches his fellows and the way that he teaches his residents, what advice he gives them, what, what he starts every day with, uh, it was, it was heartening. I thought it was, 
you don't hear that as much from doctors, especially now during, you know, COVID, we're two years into COVID, the pandemic, and, you know, we're hearing so much about like healthcare worker burnout and, you know, Javier just has a different energy about him. And I think part of that is, is his immigrant story, right? Part of that is his story about how and why he's here, how and why he stayed, and the patients that he serves. And part of it is just his personality. But, um, you know, I last episode of Expert Voices, we talked to somebody I did not know very well, and I learned so much uh, about Joel Hubbard. This time I'm like, oh my God, I know, you know, Javier and I have, we are friends. We're really good friends. And still I came away being like, oh my God, I learned so much about this man and what he does. And, you know, I was, I was so happy to have him um, on the podcast. I really was. It was, it was amazing to talk to him. And again, like you, I always feel like every time we talk to an expert, I'm like, oh, wow, that was such a great conversation. I learned so much. And it's true. I think both of us do learn so much but it's rare that you speak with an expert and you end up feeling comforted and cared for. And I think even though we weren't, Javier wasn't providing any, you know, that service to me or to you, you could absolutely hear how empathetic he is with all of his patients. And I felt cared for by extension. Um, and I felt safe with him, which, you know, you can't say that with all doctors. So that's amazing. Absolutely. That, and we're on Zoom and we're on Zoom, right? And, and you still, you, it just comes through. I hope all of our listeners will hear that too. Also, I would like to say his Familact made you almost spit out your soda. I did. Oh my God. <laughs> it was awesome. So you all have, all our listeners absolutely have to listen to the end because it's amazing. Kosha had heard it before and she still was laughing. Still and laughing. I like now. almost lost it. It's so good. <laughs> All right, my friends, please enjoy. I am speaking with expert voices, Dr. Javier Gomez. Hello, my name is Dr. Javier Gomez, uh, and I am speaking. Welcome, Dr. Javier Gomez. Hello. Would you you like us to call you Dr. Gomez? Would you like us to call you Dr. Javier? Or would you like us to call you Javier? Uh, I think Javier is fine. Okay. It would be super weird if I had to, because like Javier and I are very good friends. So if I had to call you Dr. Gomez, it would be a little strange. I would do it. But it'd be a little strange. <laughs> yeah. What if we insist that Kosha has to call you Dr. Gomez the entire time? <laughs> yeah, I think that would be nice. Yeah, no. And, and Sheila, she could call you Javier. That would be very weird. Exactly. I yes, like that, it. That'd be fun. That would be like great older sister, like psychological torture. Like, no, you have to call your friend by a formal title the entire episode. Yeah. After we've met several times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Javier is actually the older brother out of two. Mm. Younger. Oh, oh wait, you're really? younger. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. My brother is the older, wiser brother. Mm. Older, <laughs> at least. I mean, I'm the oldest of four, but I never claim to be wiser than anyone. I just claim to be the oldest. You're kidding. I also no, no, no. I never claim. 
I never claim to be the wisest. I claim to be perfect. Right. That's which true. is different. I see. Yeah. Very different. <laughs> yes. So, Javier, could you just give us, us and our listeners sort of a sense of your background, both in terms of your um, cultural background, because I know you are not U.S. born, but also your professional background. Absolutely, yeah. I was born in Colombia um, in a city called Cali, C-A-L-I. You were not born in Cali. Kosha. Was that? You were not born oh, in Cali. Oh, you're absolutely right, actually. I'm sorry. I'm not wrong. This is funny because <laughs> I consider myself as being born in Cali, but that's actually... You know, I'm glad you're my friend, Kosha, and you remember these things. <laughs> We're going to have to start this question all over again. This this exchange cannot happen. Oh, no. I'm leaving this in. <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny. My mom would be so, like, she'd be laughing so much right now. Yeah, you know, this is uh, very uh, subconscious of me. This is undercutting your ability to be an expert if you cannot name where you were actually born. Okay, All I right. will stop. I will stop second-guessing you. <laughs> well, no, if it's wrong, that's one thing, but like... But there is a there is a background to it. You know, I was, uh, I was born in Bogota, actually, the capital. When I was very, very young, my parents moved to Cali. You know, I always considered myself to be what we call a caleño, so somebody that's from Cali. And the thing is, there's always, uh, you know, a little rivalry between the cities, you know, between Cali and, and Bogota and maybe even Medellin. So uh, I, it became ingrained in my nature, you know, the feeling that I was from Cali. So I swear to God, this was completely unconscious <laughs> that I said I was born in Cali, but I was not actually. <laughs> I moved from Bogota where I was born to Cali when I was about a year old. And then I lived all my life in Cali. And when did you come to the States? I came to the States in 2009. The main reason to move to the States was actually to pursue additional medical training. I did my medical school in Cali. And then, uh, you know, we do over there, we do have to complete a mandatory one year of social service. What I did was I worked with the Colombian army. And then at that time, one of my good friends from medical school was actually doing the process to come to the States for additional training. She contacted me because she wanted to work with the army because they gave flexible schedules. Uh, and, and I started talking to her and she actually kind of talked me into it. She was like, you should try it, this and that. And I was like, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's not something I had in mind, uh, you know, for my future. But the more we spoke about it, the more it seemed like a good idea, actually. I mean, uh, full of challenges, of course, but but definitely in the long run, a good idea. As I did the steps, I, I realized, OK, this is, uh, you know, this is advancing. This is moving forward. So I definitely have to make a decision and. Finally decided, okay, let's let's do this seriously. So in 2008, I applied for residency in internal medicine here. Offered me the option of coming here to Chicago. Didn't know anything about Chicago. Uh, all I knew is there was a friend of mine here. It was the only person I knew who had come a year before. And then I told my girlfriend at the time, Monica, who is now my wife, hey, you know what? Like I, we had talked about it before, but it was like, okay, this is... Uh, now serious, you know, uh, you know, we are, I want you to come with me. Let's go together, be a family over there. Came here uh, to start residency in 2009 at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. Going to Cook County has been probably in my mind, one of the very good decisions I made in my life. Three years of residency until 2012. Then I did one year chief medical resident from 2012 to 2013. 
then cardiology fellowship from 2013 to 2016, when I finally finished my training and then started working. And because of, uh, you know, they liked me in uh, Cook County Hospital and cardiology. So they offered me a position to stay as an attending and I took it and here we are. Wow. And so talk a little bit about what you're doing at Cook County Hospital now. You're an attending, but what does your, you know, what does it entail? I'm an attending cardiologist at the Cook County Hospital. That means we we are about 14 cardiologists right now, and we all split many of the things that we have to do. Uh, and then there's some that some of us do and some others don't. So what we split is we cover uh, the cardiac intensive care units. Those are the sickest patients we have. And so that one is uh, probably one of the big ones. We also cover the inpatient consult service, which means um, every patient that gets admitted, they have a cardiac issue and the you know primary teams, internal medicine, family medicine, surgery, whatever it is, we see the patients and provide uh, recommendations. And the other things we do is we read cardiac studies every day. So echocardiograms, um, stress tests, not all of us read stress tests, all of us read echoes, stress tests, and advanced cardiac imaging is one of the things I do, but not only a few of us do that. So uh, cardiac uh, CTs, which are you know dedicated CTs to look at the heart in some specific areas of the heart, nuclear stress testing, cardiac MRIs. The other thing is we do clinic every week. We have clinics where we see the patients that we see in house, or um, you know patients that get referred by primary physicians. Then we educate the fellows. So that's another good part of our, tra- of our time, finding time to educate the fellows. So we give them lectures, we round with them, and uh, we have to plan a lot of educational activities. And some part of it is administrative work, but that's the, minor, the smallest part. That's to be expected of yeah. any job, really. The funnest part. Your original plan was to come for a residency. And I mean, all the best plans go to shit, right? But was your plan to, to come and go back to Cali? Yeah. So at the beginning, the plan was actually, yeah. I mean, let me just kind of say that the plan was not completely clear. I mean, the plan was to come, get trained. And there was an idea that maybe we'd go back, but it was not, yeah, it's like in the words of Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> so, uh, nice. you know, the plan was not a very long-term plan. Let me just put it that way. We had a plan to come get trained. The thing with that medical training is you never know, because I didn't know that I was going to do additional training beyond internal medicine at the beginning. I wanted to, but I didn't know how things were going to go. So the, the long-term plan wasn't very clear. We were always open-minded about it. Uh, but I think family-wise, we did have you always have that idea that maybe we should go back and, I mean, I don't know, give back to the, you know, try to yeah. teach there what I learned here, implement there what I learned here. But again, as I said, as things progressed, that plan had to be updated. Yeah, absolutely. I spent almost 20, 20 years living in the San Francisco Bay Area. I moved there after I finished graduate school and I thought, this will be fun. I'll have a job here for a couple of years and my family is always going to be in Chicago. So I'll just go back when I'm ready. It's going to be a nice like adventure. Yeah. You know, go West young man type adventure. Uh, and then, you know, I think what happens to a lot of people and it sounds like what happens to you is you get, you sort of get into a work life, you start to build connections. That's where all of your professional 
connections are, that's where you have opportunity. And it gets harder and harder to leave um, until something really, really pushes you out of your, your comfort zone. I mean, think we eventually did end up back in, in the Chicago area, but similar to you, it's like, then you start to put down roots where you are and extracting your entire family to go. It's one thing if it's just one person, but you know, then it's like your wife and your children and you know, all your professional connections. And that just gets so impossible to restart. Absolutely. I think what happened is we unrooted once, you know, coming here. As I said, we didn't know anything about Chicago. The first thing we realized is it's really cold. Uh, and we were dealing with that for the first couple of years. But then we actually really enjoyed Chicago and we loved it. My wife started liking it. Uh, my daughter grew up, you know, she was born there. She came here when she was six months old. But then she grew up. She started going to, I don't know, kindergarten school, whatever it is. And she started making friends. Um, I mean, for all practical purposes, all she knew was life here. And so uh, thinking about uh, unrooting again was like, and not only unrooting, but we, we, we started really liking, as you said, you create connections, you create a life. You know, we thought about it, but we realized that the best thing we could do was probably stay here, work, enjoy the benefits of the U.S., which I'm, you know, really grateful for, you know, being able to be here and doing everything that we did, but also being able to go back on vacation, enjoy the family, you know, seeing them frequently and all that. And so that seemed to be the right balance for us. It's a common refrain we hear a lot from people who have moved either within a country or, you know, between towns and cities or internationally. I believe if, I, if I'm not wrong, Kosha, you may can correct me on this as you just corrected Javier, that my, <laughs> when my parents came to the States, the plan was very similar. That's what they had thought they would be here for a couple of years once my dad finished his residency and then they would move back to India. And, you know, it's been 46 years since they've been here. Um, and there's no, you know, at one point they said something to the effect of like, they used to say, oh, we really want to go back and, you know, sort of like to be more of it, die in our home country. Like, you know, at the end of their life, they wanted to be back there. We have not heard them say that in a long time. This is their home now. Also, you know, they've got kids and grandkids here, but I think they also feel like we're not leaving. We can go back to India and visit, but like we live here now. This is our home. It's, it's a very similar story that you just kind of like, yeah, this is where we live now. And this is, I like it here. Yeah. I'm amazed at how many people have very similar situations because I interview candidates for residency and for cardiology fellowship. And I'm telling you, like so many people say the same thing. And actually, I think they honestly feel that way that, you know, I'm going to get training and I'll go back, you know, and from many different countries, because we interview people from many, many different countries, but it, everybody has kind of that same mentality. And then the majority that we match are people that you get to know for a longer period of time, you realize that things change. And, you know, um, and I think that's fine. You know, you just, uh, you adapt to the circumstances and you realize things and you grow and you learn and you realize things. And, and yeah, at the end of the day, this is a great place to be. Yeah. So you just, oh, go ahead, Kosha. No, I was going to say your brother is a cardiologist in Cali. Yes. So that's like an interesting sibling study because he is, the older, wiser <laughs> brother, um, as we established. But, but can you talk a little bit about the difference? How is being a cardiologist here 
financially, socially, culturally, how is that different than you would have been in, in Cali? So this is a, a very, I think, I mean, uh, you, you, you touch like a very good point there because my brother, he's older than me. He finished obviously uh, medicine, the medical, the medicine career earlier than me. He did work for some period of time, but like when he decided he wanted to pursue additional training. So the thing that was different from me is I realized, you know, I was dating my, my wife, my wife at the time. And I realized, okay, if I want to do additional training for several years, because you know, this is not a short thing. I was thinking at the time, I want to, you know, I want to take my relationship to the next level, get a little bit more serious. Uh, in Colombia, the biggest problem is you don't get any kind of, let's say, you don't get any kind of payment or reimbursement or anything when you do additional training. Actually, it's the opposite. You have to pay. Mm. And so if you decide to do that, and it's a, it's a very, very demanding, there's like the whole thing about duty hours doesn't exist over there. You know, it's like um, all this uh, safeguards are, you know, are not as strict. Let's put it that way. Uh, so it's very challenging. I thought, wow, if I decide to stay, I basically will have to ask Monica to come live with me with my parents, you know, or something like that. So then I was like, okay, I really got to go, you know, because when you come here and you do, uh, you know, additional training, you actually get paid and you don't have to pay. I mean, it's not easy to get in, but once you get in, it's actually a pretty good deal. And so my brother was a little different because he started working. So he had some income. And then he got a little bit comfortable in that area. And then when he decided he wanted to do something else, it was harder. He was already yeah. married. He had a kid. And so that changed things a little bit. First of all, it took him longer to be able to figure out how to do that. Uh, and it was very difficult. It's always difficult, but it was way harder for him trying to figure out how to balance his life, you know, and his family and his goals professionally. That was really tough. And I think, I mean, he was, you know, he did get a lot of support from his wife and, 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 you know, parents and everybody, but it was tough. And the process, I think, was harder for him because now he had been working for a while. He was a little bit older. So going back to that training mentality is, uh, is not easy. Sure. And then when he finished, or when he was about to finish, when he started working, he was doing okay. But like, as you said, in Colombia, uh, you know, uh, the physicians, they do okay, don't get me wrong, but um, especially primary care physicians, or uh, let's say, uh, even if you're specialist, if it's uh, not a sub-sub-specialty, uh, you know, you you get by, but it's not not great. Let me just put it mm -hmm. that way. So here in the U.S., if you train and specialize and sub-specialize, uh, you know, it's usually very well um, compensated. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely the the hard work definitely pays off. Definitely pays off. Over there is a little harder, but the good news for my brother is he did a lot of extra training. So he's not only a cardiologist, he became an electrophysiologist on top of being a cardiologist. So I'm really happy for him. And I pushed him to do that because that is a way to stand out over there. There's very few. And now he's actually doing great, very well. He thought about actually at some point of leaving the country, going to some other country. He thought about Europe. The U.S. for him was an option, but it was just too long because he would have had to repeat everything. Mm, oh, yeah. And so I've known a lot of people who've done that. 
But like, if you have two kids, a wife and things like that, it makes it very difficult. Yeah. And so that kind of excluded the option. I mean, I would have loved if he came here because, I mean, he, as I said, he's the older and wiser and he would do amazingly, but the process was just going to be too, too hard. At the end of the day, he realized after working for some time that he, he's, 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 well, he's doing fine. He's got like now established uh, reputation, connections, things like that. And, uh, and so he's doing very well, but the process is definitely hard. I think... If he was, if he knew about the whole process and he had a chance to repeat things, I can guarantee you he would have come here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Kosha may have told you our our mom is a dentist by training and actually was was practicing in India before she got married and and moved to the states. And you know, at the time in the seventies, you could sit for the exam and you know just pass the exam. Um, and if you pass and you could be, you know, get your license and then over time it became, oh, you got to take a one-year refresher course and then you got to do this, you got to do that. And then uh, by the time my mom was ready to go back and, you know, get her license, they required foreign graduates to go back to dental school. And my mom was like, no, <laughs> I mean, my mom was probably in her late thirties at that point. Try it no, mid no, mid forties, early forties at least. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, probably like the age of your brother now, right? Like my age. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's where he is. Yeah. So, and my mom was like, I'm not going back to dental school. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, that, and I think that that is the thing, which is depending upon when you immigrate and start your professional training somewhere, it's easier or harder. Um, and for your brother, especially, you know, it's like with the family and getting them all, you know, settled here. And, and that becomes a challenge because then like who gets settling part and applying for visas. And it's all just gets so complicated that I think um, I can see why your brother was like, no, it's fine now. I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. We're at the point now where our, you know, I know your mom is out there. So like our parents are getting older and you want to be closer to them just in case you know something happens and things like that so you know when you're younger those kind of concerns they're there but they're not as as prevalent and you know how about the respect level like how like here doctors are kind of in an upper echelon of society in terms of you're respected you're oh you're a doctor this and that you know every every Indian wants their kid to be a doctor so we we know the push there how about in Colombia? like is there like societally do are do they have that respect in like in the communities so uh, yeah definitely there is a degree of uh, respect i think historically it used to be um uh, more you know let's say more general like if you're a doctor in general most people would be just very respectful of you just because of that. Lately, though, I think that has changed to some extent. I think when people, you know, for people who are, let's say, primary care providers or for people who are not the, like, the sub-sub-sub-specialist in Colombia, people do not see them the same way. It's more of a, and I think it's unfortunate because I think those jobs are probably the hardest because they have to deal with absolutely everything. But it's, it's definitely, you see people actually, they, they say, oh, you're a doctor. What kind of doctor? And when people say, I don't know, primary care or something, they say, oh, you're just a primary care. 
something like that. Uh -huh. So that's it's kind of like a new tendency that you can see nowadays. Everybody's like, so Colombia had, you know, through some laws and stuff, you know, the the law 100 is what it's called, Lacian. They tried to make healthcare uh, accessible to everybody, which I think is a great principle. The problem is the way to implement that was to decrease wages for doctors. So what that led to was the need for a lot of doctors, but not a lot of money to pay them, and then not a lot of good places where uh, they could get trained. So it led to a lot of different places for training that were not great, let's just put it that way. And it led to a lot of, let's say, you know, if you don't have great training, then, you know, some of the people who graduate, maybe not great at it or something. Mm -hmm. And then the people are getting under like paid very poorly. So people are not really so people are trying to see not 20 patients, but 100 to make the same money. So it led to a, in my opinion, a, let's say, a deterioration of the quality of care. So then because of that, people started perceiving those primary care providers mm -hmm. as, you know, they're not very. So the first question they ask always is, oh, the, the, why are you here? Oh, I need you to send me to the specialist. Interesting. You no. Know? And so it, it, it led to a lot of issues. I think, again, the law in principle was a good law, you know, but the way to implement it, because Colombia doesn't have a lot of resources as a country. So if you're going to, if you want to have a lot of doctors to treat everybody, where is the money going to come from? Hmm. And so it led to all these issues. So I think, but like still, the people who have, I mean, and because in Colombia, this is rare because all the problems that I mentioned to get, Subspecialty training is really tough. Like in, in Columbia, the majority of people cannot do it, just physically can't. So, so that leads to a few numbers. So those subspecialists, they are still very sort of revered and appreciated and, and seen as they still have a lot of uh, prestige. Mm -hmm. So if you manage to make it there, you're good. Like this is kind of what happened to my brother, which I was happy. And I pushed him. He was like, I don't know. I don't want to do this. This is too hard. And, you know, all the family, me, my mom, everybody, we were like, no, you have to, you have mm -hmm. to, you know, this is, it's in the long run, it's going to be way better. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, thankfully he did, but that's kind of where, and so I think I feel bad about that type of attitude towards doctors a little bit over there. It's not all, it's not in general, it's not a generalized thing, but you see more and more. Of it. Yeah. yeah. I have to say though, I don't think that the U.S., is significantly different than Colombia. It's that the stratification is people who can pay to have health insurance versus people who don't. And for doctors who treat largely uninsured populations, it's still the same. Oh, your primary care physician, you know, people who work at community clinics, clinics, they're always overworked and they're always harried and they're always frustrated. The sort of public opinion of them is kind of like, eh. Right. Yeah. Oh, so you just signed up to be like, you don't actually make a difference because you just see the same people over and over again. And they, you know, blah, blah, blah. And whatever story people want to tell about themselves. And we also, and yeah, and we know that a lot of these patients come in because they don't have insurance. So mm -hmm. they come into the ER yes. like, oh, what, you know, what, what's, what are you here for? And I've heard a lot of, you know, well, uh, I twisted my ankle last week. And it really hurts. Yeah. And you're like, that's not an emergency. Right. So, so yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I think that's a really good pivot 
to, you know, I don't only want to talk about Colombian healthcare because um, you don't practice there. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a good pivot to, to your patient population now at Cook County is, I mean, talk a little bit about the, the types of people you see. Yeah, I think uh, that's great. I, I agree with you about the whole comparison and there's not that much of a difference in that perception between uh, you know the two populations, but I think it's a little bit more pronounced there, uh, but I definitely agree with you. So talking a little bit about what I do here and I actually, this is, I mean, I, you, you guys have really brought up some very important things. One is the fact that here in the U.S., if you decide to work with underserved population, you know two things for a fact. Number one, that you're not going to be paid the same if that if you pra practice in private practice, and, I, and, and the difference is significant. And two, that the perception of what you do or why people go see you is very different. And you know, you can, you can interpret that however you want, but it's a, definitely a, working with underserved here in the U.S. is definitely a, 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 a choice that you have to make. And it's, um, and it's a challenge, but I think it's also, it can be, not always, but it can be extremely rewarding. So in my particular example, you know, when I trained in Columbia, I trained in a public hospital, my, my medical school, the hospital where we train, where we practice is a public hospital. So obviously broke, you know, there's obviously no funding. Uh, and if you think public hospitals here don't have money, you like, I think if you've been to in India, probably you, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yes. Meaning yeah. I would see patients who had like, I don't know, when we were doing like plastics rotation, somebody that would have like a, let's say an injury in the face, a cut that requires some stitches. And those stitches are actually, you know, they have to be small stitches to be very, you know, to be careful with the face. And frequently you would be like, this is the price for the, you know, for the suture material. This is the price for the numbing medicine, lidocaine or whatever it is. And you can buy, we don't have it. You can buy them in the pharmacy next door. If it doesn't, if you don't have enough money for the numbing medicine, or we can stitch them up just without it. But it's up to you, you know, the family member. Yes. Um, and I swear to God, that happened more than once. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and uh, they were like, well, you know, we made, you know, we just made it for the suture. So here you go. And the patient like, yeah, just go for it, you know. Um, or we had to reuse sterile gloves, for example. Meaning you would use them, you would throw them in a little bucket, they would take them to like the sterilizing room and they were like, I call it cook them because they would put them in the autoclave, <laughs> which would just like, and then bring them back and like fold them in like a paper, uh, you know, and yeah. like a little, yeah. and then we'd use them again because that's, and, but so for me, that as training was really good because I was able to, um, I, I realized that you have to be kind of creative, you know, and you have to work with what you have. And that actually makes me think about patients in a different way. So when I came here, for me, things here were easy, to be honest, like uh, not not easy, but like it wasn't I wasn't scared. You know, I wasn't. Uh, and I thought there's there's always a solution to whatever problem came. Mm -hmm. So when I did my training here, obviously, Cook County is a public hospital, safety net hospital. You see a lot of underserved population, not only underserved, but people from all over the world. Which I was amazed by. And so I loved it. And I realized that that's what I wanted to do. 
I was like, look, it's so challenging. I mean, like, and you may not make as much money, but it's so rewarding when you see patients and that don't speak the language that, uh, you know, have been to other hospitals and they tell them, look, you know what, we're going to give you, you know, a couple of ibuprofens and a map to Cook County, you know, and actually here's 10 bucks that'll get you, you know, take a cab and you'll, you'll get there. And I realized, okay, this is, uh, you know, I, I, I think when you see that frequently, you realize in this cases, I definitely can make a difference. It may not be a difference for, I don't know, in the big circles, it might not be a difference in the perception that people have, but it's a big difference in that person's life, mm-hmm. you know? So I realized, that, you know, this is something I want. So tr- throughout my training, that got mm, confirmed. I mean, it became more and more apparent. And so when I had the opportunity to choose work, I mean, obviously, when you're when you're finishing your career, there's always a lot of offers that come from different places. And we got offers from different places, very good offers, private practice, this and that. And, um, you know, I was always hesitant about it. But then the minute they said, hey, there might be a position here, I was like, you know, where do I sign? And it can be challenging frequently. The patients are very challenging. They don't know what they're taking. They don't care too much frequently. They can't afford the medication. If like So luckily, the hospital is actually quite good at it because we give them the medicine. Um, um, but it's challenging. You know, I mean, you get patients who are, I don't know, get upset at you and they don't want to take what you're taking. They just have a heart attack and they're like, can I go out for a smoke? I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea, but, uh, you know, and you explain to them for like 45 minutes why it's not a good idea. And then, you know, you see them in clinic two weeks later, they're like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm down to half a pack. Okay. I mean, I guess it's progress, but yeah, it's progress. Exactly. So that's how you, that's what I tell myself. It's yeah. progress. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, what I've, but then I've, there are cases where you make a difference. Somebody comes in with a heart attack, you give them the meds, you, you know, you put a stent in, you know, open the arteries. Patients are very grateful um, and they do take their meds and you see them a month later, a year later, they're living their life. They're doing great. No insurance, but they're doing great. And that is extremely rewarding. So, um, yeah, that's uh, for me, that's extremely important. And that's why I chose to stay at Cook County. Because Cook County Hospital and Chicago itself is just such a global city. And so Cook County Hospital serves a global population. Do you see any differences, cultural differences in how people respond to you or respond to your advice or how they present, right? So one interesting thing, uh, just as a, as a point of comparison, is our brother is a hospitalist down in the South Burbs. I can never remember where he works. He's at South know. Suburban. He's South, South Suburban. Okay. Okay. Uh, somewhere down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that we learned from him when he was on our podcast a little bit ago is that... Um, that women very often do a lot of the caretaking both for themselves and for their partners. So regardless of who's sick, they're the ones who are like listening to the information, like telling who's telling the doctor, like what meds you're on and like, like figuring out the, the plan. How do you see that playing out with the populations that you serve? 
Is it like that? Is there, do you see any generational differences or any cultural differences? So definitely, definitely that is a major characteristic of certain populations because we see so many different populations. I see a lot of, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of Indian patients, a lot of Arab patients. We see a lot of Eastern European, Polish. And so in most of the immigrant communities, most of the immigrant communities, it is, it is always that way. There's always either the wife, the daughter, you know, sometimes is the daughter-in-law. It's not even the son, but it's the daughter-in-law. So, and they always get there with the bag of bottles, you know, with the, and when you're telling them, like you say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, you know, you, we're going to do that. You're going to make this change to your medication regimen. They usually point and say, hey, just, just let her know, you know, wow. and uh, yeah, 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 that's true. And I have patients who, uh, and it, but it's, it's very, in my opinion, and from what I see, it's not that common in the American patients that I see, you know, it's not that common but in the immigrant Hispanics, like there's always uh, a woman helping either either the mother or the father. It doesn't matter, but there's always somebody else. If it's if it's a couple, and this is like to me when it gets very tricky, it's a couple where both of them are sick, for example. It doesn't matter, you know, what the wife has usually. I mean, she can have very severe and debilitating diseases, but she's always helping the the, the partner um, and so it's tough it's really tough on them and you try to provide support so we're like okay you know let me see if we can get you a homemaker or somebody else that goes so that you can have a little time for yourself because it's it's just uh you know it's very difficult sometimes for it's when it for them to try to not even have a moment to you know be themselves but also to take care of themselves because frequently they're sick they're a, you know in my opinion just as sick and uh, and they're like no no no. Yeah, and you don't have time to fix generations of trauma and misogyny yeah. and sexism, right? So, like, okay, what can I do in this fifteen-minute appointment to yeah. at least help alleviate some of this imbalance? Yeah, and you're like, okay, I'll take care of this patient. I'll tell you what to do, but what can I do to help her as well? Because it's very common, and it's um, and it's as I said, it's very cultural, very cultural. And, uh, yeah, but it's, 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 um, very, very common, very, very common. Yeah. Frequently, actually, in addition to that, and, and the families are very involved, like in, in most like immigrant cultures or, or, that I, or patients that I see families are very involved and very frequently, which is also very common in my country. Families are like, don't tell the patient what he has, just let us know, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll. We don't want him or her to get bad news. We'll just, you know, let us know. Obviously, we cannot do that. But I'm telling you, in my country, that's really common. You know, and, and here the answer is very simple. You know, the patient is that person. I have to let that person know unless that person specifically tells me. Look, you know, it's my choice that you tell them whatever is related. And, and that happens actually with certain frequency as well. Uh, but the families frequently are like, oh, you know, he, he did have a heart attack. Don't tell him. Don't tell him. I have to ask him if he wants to know. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Is that usually with uh, like o the older relatives? Like the older patients, exactly. Older generations. Yeah. 
oh, don't tell him. He, we don't want him to have another heart attack. Yeah, exactly. He'd get upset and whatever, this and that. I'm like, you know, I kind of have to. That's what happened with our dad's mother. Who, oh, yeah. You know, was in her mid, early to mid 90s and was having some issues and got some fluids and then went into congenital heart failure because her body was at like, you know, perfect stasis. And then she got a bunch of fluids. But it also turns out that she had um, some form of leukemia. Multiple myeloma. Yeah, they were like, don't, we're not going to tell her. We're just going to let whatever's happening otherwise run its course. Yeah. You know, my family's a bunch of doctors. So regardless, they were just, you know, they're like looking at the test results. It wasn't even like, you know, it wasn't even any sort of like underhanded thing or they're just looking at the test results and like, oh, okay, this is what's going on. Um, But I don't believe that my grandmother actually knew this diagnosis when she passed also she was alive for after she had congenital heart failure she was alive for approximately eight days yeah before she passed okay. so it was almost yeah. like well then the, there's the question about why actually would you tell her but you know yeah definitely and that i mean and I, i'm telling you like in my family i know that my older family members like grandparents uncles that did happen all this happens all the time it's just like that's kind of like it's very, I mean, culturally, it's very common. And I, I can see the point sometimes. Like if you said, things are unfolding very quickly. You know, why add another source of anxiety or concern? But uh, when I'm like, from this end, and I can see that, like, I mean, if things are like, if, if things are advancing very quickly, but um, but then again, from, from the end of the physician, you know, the, in general, in general, mm-hmm. For the most part, we're always like the, I'd say even legally, we're like, okay, we, we need to at least ask the patient if he's okay with us, maybe keeping, you know, keeping updating the family and then they can relate the message. If they say yes, beautiful, you know, it's great. Yeah, right, right. I imagine that is a lot of what happened with my grandmother because- I'm sure, yeah. My dad, oh, my, my aunt, my uncle- um, and then some really close family friends are all physicians. And, you know, so it's like, she's like, no, I, you can talk to them and they'll tell me what I need to know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. That's what it was. Do you find that immigrant populations, immigrant patients are more deferential to the physician than, than American populations? Like, or is that a generational thing? Certainly if you think about like, you know, 70, 80 years ago, Doctors were like the authority. And you know, our dad has said that a lot of the older patients he served, and he was the urologist, so he served mostly older patients. There's this whole thing of like, anything you say, doc, whatever, it's fine. Just tell me what to do. Um, and he'd have to go, no, I can't do that. Like you actually have to be, you have to understand what I'm asking you to do and you have to consent to do it. I can't just throw something at you and expect you to do what I'm asking you to do. Do you see that generationally or do you see that culturally or you don't see it at all? I, yeah. So that's a great point. I think it's definitely there. I see it. I mean, there's a little bit of both. I think I see that generationally there is a, it is there to a, to some extent. I notice it more culturally like immigrants tend to be very along those lines. They're like, okay, doc, whatever you say, I'm like, no, no, no. Let me give you the options. Let me tell you what the 
risks and benefits are. And based on that information, you can make a decision about what we're going to do. We'll do this together. And frequently they're like, you know what, if you want to tell me all those things, do it. But then at the end of the day, just tell me what to do, Mm. you know, whatever you want me to do. Uh, And I I get it. You know, um, our population is, um, you know, the health literacy is limited. And so when you try to explain things, it's not easy, you know, Um, even if, I mean, some things you can explain in very simple terms, some things you can't, especially when it comes to procedures, risks, benefits, you know, if you need surgery, you know, you have to explain that there's a risk to every surgery, right? I mean, and you never know for sure that things are going to be okay, but odds are that, and, and not odds are, but like the benefit of the surgery outweighs the risk. And, but, but, but you have to always let them know. And so that there's things that could happen just in case they happen. And then you're like, you know, this was a possibility, small one, but this was a possibility. If you don't do that, that's a big problem. But culturally, where, where I come from, not only people didn't do it, people weren't interested in, in hearing this. And I think over there, it's okay, or it was okay, it was assumed as okay. It's like, you know what, something happened, it's okay. You know, I didn't want to hear then, and I, it's okay. Here is very different. The U.S. system is very different. I didn't want to hear then, but now that it happened, how dare you not tell me? How dare you not tell me? And, uh, you know. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue you because you didn't tell me. Right. Uh, And so you. Yeah, even though I asked you not to tell me. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's my fault for not understanding. I'm going to blame it on you. Right. Absolutely. So, but. So that doesn't happen with immigrants. Though. I mean, I, I don't get that from them. They are actually genuinely telling you, like, you know what, whatever you say. And you're like, no, no, you explain to them anyway. They're like, okay, whatever I said before still applies. <laughs> so um, you're like, okay, fine. But I told you, you presumably listen. And, you know, and, and then so what I tell is I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I'm going to tell you if it was my mom, if it was my brother or whatever, this is probably what I would recommend them to do and uh, you know I'm recommending you to do this because of you know and I would recommend it to probably anybody in your circumstances and your Hispanic your Hispanic patients will go well if he would tell his mom to do it then that I will do that then absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah and like I mean I don't know some people have told me you shouldn't do that but like I don't know how else to uh communicate with them sometimes right. so that's a good way of putting things in perspective because right. they're just like wait three percent risk of this and four percent risk of that it's like it, it doesn't make any it doesn't click it doesn't make yeah, any connection yeah. to anything well it's even hard for people who have some you know familiarity with understanding medical risks and and side effects and this i mean it's hard to sort of parse particularly when there's not a clear outcome that you're like oh i have to have the surgery because it'll keep me alive as opposed to like well, this could happen or this could happen. And right. It's like, yeah. it's like taking a medicine. Well, should I do? I mean, it's not that bad. Do I have to take it? I might feel really sick. It's really hard to weigh the small percentages or even big percentages against your daily life. Right. Yeah. Where you're just like, this medicine is keeping me alive, but I feel like garbage the whole time. So I don't know if I actually want to be alive. Right. right. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a, there's a show that there's a Hispanic grandma 
and she's like well i the doctor was saying something but it was she had had a stroke and she's like the doctor was saying something and i don't understand mumbo jumbo and the her daughter goes well as a as a soon-to-be nurse practitioner let me explain it to you sit your crazy fundio down or you're gonna die like that (laughs) you know it's like that is what percentages are all I love them, right? I want to know the numbers. I want to know the diagnosis. I want to know what's the what's the chances. But at the end of the day, if something is a 4% chance and it happens to you, it doesn't matter if it was a 92% chance or 4% chance. For you, it's 100%. As an individual, it happened. It happened. So I think the way that I... I would want that. I And I say that, you know, I work in mental health and I say that to my clients who work with patients is, listen, if it was my, if, if I had a, a, a family member or a sister or brother or something that had this, I would very much want them to be on this medication. Um, I think that's a good way of relating to people who don't quite understand those statistics or don't care. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree hundred percent. So those are some of that, but I think I, I, the original question uh, was uh, about the deference or like the sort of respect. And I think, as I said, like generationally, I think that has shifted a little bit. You know, I don't see necessarily as a bad thing. Uh, it's just a little different. Like I think the newer, the, the younger, not newer, but younger generations are a little bit more of, um, uh, so, you know, if you say, well, you should take this and immediately they pull out the phone and let me Google this. I mean, like, oh, are you sure it says here that this or that? You're like, okay, yeah, I mean, actually, and I think that's good. It creates a healthy sort of, uh, you know, I think it's always good to have a little bit of skepticism as long as you realize that, you know, uh, as long as you establish a good relationship, you know, I mean, like, I'm okay with patients asking me as many things as they want to ask because I think that's actually the point. If you go to the doctor, you want to get like, you know, as much information as you can, as long as at the end of the day, you realize that, you know, I, you know, as, as your doctor, I do have, I've been doing this for some time. I have studied some of it. So maybe, you know, that's a valuable opinion. You can double check it as much as you want. And then if if that's going to make you more, let's put you at ease a little bit. That's fine. Um, is not as much as, uh, it's not so much of that, you know, this is the authority, I'll do whatever it is, like, or whatever they say. Sure, that's convenient sometimes, because you, you know, you don't have to explain yourself so much. But, you know, I welcome a little bit of debate, uh, you know, with the patients, especially if that's going to lead to a, a more fluid communication, a little bit more, um, you know, uh, and if we, at the end of the day, make decisions together based on those discussions. I mean, every now and then you get patients who just like, you know, are questioning everything for no good reason. It doesn't matter what you say. Mm -hmm. You realize it's going to be tough to help this person. But that's not the norm. Google University. Google University. (laughs) But that's not the problem. It's not Google University alone. It's like social media and all the Uh, things that get posted in there. Luckily, our patients, and I I mean, I I don't know if I should say luckily. I mean, the fact that our patients at Cook County have low health literacy uh, means that frequently they are not finding all this alternative sources of information that are not peer reviewed, you know, that are not like, so in a, in a way that's good because, you know, they know that the source for that information is the doctor. Mm-hmm. They aren't the people who are like, I looked this up on some blog and this, 
random person is like, no, you don't need to take that medicine. Just use some healing salts and some essential oils. And they're not going to argue with you. You're in therapy. These are the people who are like, I don't know. And so my doctor says something and I'm just going to have a conversation with my doctor. I'm not going to go look for Mm -hmm. like alternative medicine blogs to back me up. Yeah. They don't hear these things or they don't read them in like crazy. I don't know. Reddit threads or whatever. They, if they hear them, they hear them from the neighbor, you know, like, Oh, you know, this, I have this uncle or aunt who said I should take, you know, if I have a heart, if I had a heart attack, all I need to do is take some garlic, you know, you know, <laughs> right. fasting. I've yes, heard that right, so many yes. times. I'm like, you know what, if you want to take the garlic, take it, but also take this pill, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that way we'll like, we'll compromise. Yes. And they're like, like all, all the sort of villagey folk medicine. Yeah. Oh my God. My mom is so full of that stuff. And she's like, she's a dentist and she's married to a physician, family full of physicians and everything comes down to a change in weather. Yeah. (laughs) Why you feel like shit? What my leg is falling off. Oh, you know what? The weather, the changing weather. Weather's changing. I know it could be anything. I have this, like it happens. I swear to God, like all the patients come like, I've been having chest pain when I do activities and I exercise. But I think, you know, it's a little colder outside. And I think that's it. And I'm like, yeah. well, it could be, right, you know, right. like I have to, you know, it could be, but you may also be having some angina, you know, and like maybe we need to, as the weather gets back to a little bit warmer weather or whatever, how about we do the stress test, you know? Yeah, right. We should revisit this. Yeah. So I'm curious how all of your, all of these things come together and how you work with your residents and your fellows. Like, how do you, bring your cultural background, your experiences in Colombia, and sort of your understanding of working with all of these disparate populations to, to sort of help residents and fellows serve the communities that they're working with, many of whom still work in Cook County, right? And particularly if you're like, if you don't have that background experience to be like, oh, this is how it works over here. <laughs> how do you help them understand like, you don't just go, well, no, you have to take this medicine and read this study and blah, blah, blah. Like, this is one of my favorite stories. I'm so glad you brought this up, Shulshi. And I did not prompt her because one of my, this is why I was like, Javier needs to be on this podcast because he told this story about how he has to teach his fellows to talk to a lot of, it was like a lot of Latinos, right? Like the, the Latino population you were talking about specifically. So I love this. So start there with that amazing story. And then um, you could talk a little bit more. You're talking about the story about yeah. calling everything eco. And, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so yeah, the thing is for us, like in, you know, Hispanics, we tend to put like ito or ita at the end of words to make him, I mean, it's like like small, right? But like we, we say, look, you know. Um, and more palatable, I would say. Yeah, it makes it like sound like not as bad and people appreciate it. And culturally, we do this all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, we need, oh, what happened to her? Oh, she had a little bump, like, or something. Everything is little. Well, and this, so, it, just to interrupt, it's like people, you know, doctors, even in the States, calling it like, I had an incident. Right. Right. I had a heart, I, I had an incident as opposed to like a heart attack, right? Yeah. I worked in diabetes for some time and especially the Hispanic or Latino population, they would say like, I just have high sugars. They don't have diabetes. Yeah. Nobody says diabetes. Right. Like I just have a little high sugar. Right. So, so you were, okay. So I'll, I'll stop interrupting you. 
No, so what happened, I mean, like, and, and this is, it happens all the time still. So when I see patients and I see them for the first time, it's like, you know, if they come to the hospital and they've had like a heart attack or something and you talk to them, I would say, hey, so do you know exactly what happened and what we did? And they're like, you know, I don't know. I was like scared and they rushed me from this place to this place and I had no idea. So I was like, you know, the translation would be, I always tell them in Spanish, like, oh, you had a little infarct. So I always say, infartito, like something, you know, I mean, like, infartito. and you're going to take this uh, little pill, pastillita, and you're going to be fine. And, you know, we'll see it. And so everybody was looking at me and like, why do you keep saying ito, ita, and this and that? And I was like, well, you know, and, and they're like, well, the infarct is not really small. It's a regular size, you know, uh, infarct. You know? It was a regular heart attack. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But patients are like, oh, okay. So it was like an infartito. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. We can get better and all that. So it was like, yeah, culturally, this is the way to communicate with them. And I, I do that with my daughter. Like, my daughter with my wife and family like we always say that and so that uh, you know it's it's i think is hard for people from different cultures and different backgrounds number one if you're a patient and you come from a different culture and you know you don't know and people are telling you all these things is really scary and it's really um you know anxiety generating you know so the minute you hear somebody saying in partito you're like ah okay thank <laughs> god you know we're good and so I think I find it to be, you know, it acknowledges their background and it also creates, uh, you know, some space for them to, okay, let me calm down. You know, it, it, it allows for some, you know, to relieve some of the anxiety that's happening. And so I do it all the time. Uh, people who speak Spanish, but are from the U.S., especially those are the ones that ask me, like, you know, not native mm. Spanish speakers from South America, like, why do you keep saying that? I'm like, yeah, that's the way to say it. And patients love it, I think, because um, they, for them, then it gives, you know, it changes the perspective on what's going on. So I and if they can great. get better. I think what you said was like, if you say infartito, then you're like, oh, okay, so it's a small situation. And if I make these changes, if I take this little pill, then yeah. I can get better versus exactly. like a huge old heart attack. Like, then yeah so then what's the point of doing anything exactly right apparently i'm just gonna die right exactly exactly so yeah it definitely gives a little let's say hope you know they're like oh okay good there's there's a good outlook here then you know like it's not as bad as i thought right uh, i mean and sometimes things are not great and i'm not trying to make up stuff i'm just trying to make it a little easier to digest uh -huh. and so i mean the residents know to me i keep telling them the most important thing, the most important thing to do every day, I don't care if your day is long, hard, whatever it is, I always tell them this, is, is you, you're here to help people. Okay? As a trainee, you're also here to learn, but above that is to help people. And so sometimes helping people just means, you know, provide some uh, comfort. You know, you don't need to do surgery to help somebody. You may just provide some comfort. And that is a way to do that. And the trainees now know, and for, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, let's say, strict with those things when it comes to patients. Patients are scared. The last thing they know they need is for somebody to be there to make things worse. 
So uh, I'm very strict. I always say, don't touch the patient unless you tell them you're going to touch them. Because sometimes they go and just start touching or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say, the first thing you do when you walk in is introduce yourself. So you'll be amazed. Like when, you know, training, introduce yourself, say who you are, what are you here for? Um, and so, and, and that's what my wife says. Sometimes I'm mean to them, but I'm like, this is, this is serious. I mean, like the patients are there. Nobody likes to be in a hospital, number one. So if you cannot, I, and, and they're really sick sometimes. So if you're going to be there, you know, if you don't want to be there, don't be there, you know, but if you're going to act or treat people in a, in a way that it's not going to provide comfort, reassurance, and things like that, then, you know, I'd rather do it myself. You, you go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to, we can talk about it. And this is for residents, but especially for fellows. Fellows are people who already did medical school, already did internal medicine. So they're at the advanced stage in their training and careers. They should know this. And and I, what I keep telling them, you're here to help. This is not a game. Don't, you know, we're not playing. This is serious. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you cannot enjoy what you're doing, but you have to take it serious. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too carried away with it, but no, this is why you're here. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's valuable. And what you said, which is, you know, sort of like how you start the conversation with your patient, it sets the tone for everything that for comes everything. after. Absolutely. Right. So if you establish that, Hey, I, I'm this person, I'm going to be your doctor. I'm going to be helping you or talk through this. You know, I've got the chart in front of me. You know, could you tell me your name and what you're here for? Also, because doctors are not robots and they do make mistakes. And I've had, you know, I've, I've had a situation and it wasn't a big deal, right? Because I was like, no, but I had a situation where when I was in the hospital, the, uh, whoever was, you know, the hospital doing rounds was like, oh, so you're in diabetes, you have diabetes. And I was like, no, he's like, oh, oh, I looked at the wrong chart, right? So that, I mean, that, that's a relatively small error if you catch it, but if you don't even talk about it with your patient, when you walk in the door, you're, you, you could be seriously mistreating someone at worst, but at best, you're like, you set the person off. Like, you don't even know me. You're not even paying attention. You don't care about me. Absolutely. Yeah, and you've mentioned before, you know, that, because you said like introduce yourself and if it's an older person like call them sir absolutely absolutely especially if you understand their background because that they're especially this the immigrant populations they bring so much of their background into their current situation that you know if 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 that is an older woman you call her doña or you call him don carlos or whatever and absolutely and that they're like, oh, so they're not just seeing me as a number, right? They're seeing me as a person. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think those first, like, I don't know, 20 seconds of interaction with your patient actually dictate the tone of the whole relationship to a very large extent. You know, you go there, you look at them in the eyes, you know, you're not like typing away at the patient somewhere in the corner um, and you show them that you are actually present and that you care and that you, it's, it's in my opinion, it's simple things. It's common sense, but I mean, I, I say this to my residents and fellows all the time. It's common sense, but you'd be surprised at how uncommon it, you know, I mean, it's not as common as you would think it is. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, like uh, in, 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 you know, part of the question was about 
the you know trainees and all the different backgrounds of patients and how they deal with that. I think part of the beauty of Cook County, I'll tell you to be honest, is it's so diverse in terms of the staff as well. Like in the cardiology division, I can tell you we have people from like we're 14 cardiologists, Colombia, Peru, Ukraine, uh, Syria, uh, Croatia, you know, uh, you, you name it, Iraq, uh, Nigeria. And that's just from a small group of people. We're all from different countries. So we all have a different background. And we so there's there's one thing we realize is that everybody has a different background and different things. Um, I think it's it makes for great learning opportunity about the different backgrounds and different practices and different beliefs of other people, you know, socially, culturally, religiously, um, you know, and that the same happens with patients, right? The thing is, uh, you know, there are some things that apply to every culture, you know, like being respectful, looking at them in the eye, you know, and, and when you don't know, you just kind of ask. Right. I mean, you would you be OK if I call you this way? Would you be OK if I talk to your family member, you know, rather than you? And what do you prefer? So but when it comes to trainees, I think there's so many different backgrounds that right off the bat, they realize, OK, I have to do my best to understand what each specific person needs. Some people are very good at it. Some people are not very good at it. Um but it's still a great learning opportunity. I'm telling you, we have, you know, we use interpreters so much from like, I remember my first um, day as a senior resident or as an as a, as a intern, you have to admit five different patients, right? And I required five different interpreters, Russian, Polish, Indian. Uh, I mean, there's only one patient that spoke Spanish and I was like, yes. <laughs> And I was like, this is crazy. And he you know, probably like, was like Mexican. And you're like, oh, that's not the word for yeah, that. Yeah, like, exactly. Even different, like you have someone from Colombia and Peru. There's differences between those, even though they're neighbors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was like, wow, this place is really diverse. You know, I mean, I, I didn't expect it, but it's been great. I love it. I mean, I think it just it's just so um, you know, it enriches the experience so much. It's more challenging. It takes more time. It takes more time because you have to understand the patient. You have to, interpreters sometimes are, you know, you know, it takes time for them to be able to, you know, really translate the whole idea of what the patient is saying. Sometimes they're not very good at it, to be honest, you know. You hear the patient like answering a question for like, 50 seconds, you know, like boom, boom, boom. And then the, the translator is like, he says, yes. <laughs> like, no, he right. didn't say yeah. yes. He said a lot of other stuff. Right. So, you know, it's challenging, but, but it, it keeps you very open-minded. You know, that's what I realized. Well, certainly caring about a person takes more time than trying to solve a problem. Absolutely. And so if you want to engage the person in solving a problem, and I think ultimately anyone who is in a helping profession, you want to empower people to solve their own problems, not to constantly have to come back to you to solve a, that same problem or another problem. And to be like, you know, you don't, you don't want, you don't want to be a dealer of medical advice or medical services, right? You want to help someone else be like, no, this is a, this is an opportunity for you to, to take this into your own hands. And that always takes more time. 
absolutely. One of, but the, part of the problem here is like those things are not like the time you take to a patient with a patient to try to understand and make them comfortable and all that. And that is not reimbursed. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Hours, I mean, like right. that is like that is not billable. So when you see healthcare as a business, and unfortunately in the U.S., healthcare is a business, uh, it makes things a little bit harder. So people are like, look, I got 15 minutes with you. I'm going to say this, however it comes. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. If you have questions, talk to the nurse in the front uh-huh. and next. Yeah. And uh, the problem is like uh, payers, sometimes insurance companies, whatever, uh, encourage that. You know, they're like, oh, forget it. You got to see another 20 patients. So you got 15 minutes per patient. And, uh, you know, everything else is, you know, your problem. Yeah. So, I mean, we are a little bit isolated from that at Cook County because it's, I mean, if anything, I mean, Cook County healthcare is not really a business. It's more of a humanitarian service. Yeah. Part of the mission of the hospital is like, uh, you know, that the hospital um, provides healthcare with excellence to anybody that walks in the door, regardless of their ability to pay. So that right off the bat takes mm-hmm. like, the business part out. That also that is also why if you stay in a hospital like Cook County, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna be making as much money as you would in private practice. So you don't have a yacht in Cartagena or anything like that. You don't have a yacht. And I, you know, that's one of the things I'm like, uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I would like to have a yacht in Cartagena. <laughs> <laughs> But also your wife is a mental health counselor. So you're not buying a yacht. We're not buying a yacht. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> needs to go work for Google. I know. Maybe Kami, maybe Camila. Maybe Camila, who knows? <laughs> so, uh, but, 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 but you realize, I, for me, the trade-off is way better because I get to spend a little bit more time on these things. And, you know, sometimes you're tired, you've seen a lot of people, but that, you know, those extra five minutes with the patient make a difference. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, um, I think if you are in this, if you chose healthcare at the end of the day, I don't know, people choose to go into medicine for many different reasons. And I, you, you know, there's a lot of, but if you're in this, but, you know, if you're in this, you should be willing to take that extra step because that is probably one of the most important aspects of taking care of somebody you know and 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 actually the word you know the words in that phrase taking care of somebody they're not uh providing medications to somebody they're not you know performing surgery on somebody they are taking care of somebody it's it's make them feel good comfortable show them that you care do your best you know and 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 you know those are the things that are not in the current system are not as easy to do, uh, but I think those are the real important ones. Yeah. Because you have such a diverse team, just, you know, your the physicians on your team, um, have you, has your group intentionally decided to adopt sort of a like cultural educational approach to the work as well? Like, oh, this person is from Nigeria. And so here, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to offer some, you know, whatever physicians from Nigeria or, you know, close by to be like, let me explain a little bit about how you might want to talk to this patient so that both all the physicians may know, but also nursing staff and residents and fellows can also be like, oh, this, like it helps them be better at their jobs. Yeah. So there's really no formal 
you know, let's say cultural education, uh, let's say. Uh, uh, yeah, component to the work, yeah. There's no, no formal, but I mean, the hospital does provide as many other academic hospitals do some um, training in uh, diversity, inclusion, equity. Once a year, we do that. I mean, and, and, and we all take part of it. What happens is, you know, as we get to know the other, uh, our partners, and we get to know them culturally and how they behave and all that, we, we kind of get a little bit more of an idea of how we should behave with those patients. Also, uh, you, know, you know, when we have patients from a certain background, uh, we've, I mean, we frequently ask the patients um, if they, you know, um, or not frequently. I, for Hispanics, it's not that easy because there's so many. Mm-hmm. But I definitely see a lot of the Hispanics. I have another colleague who's from Peru, and he sees a lot of Hispanics. So they definitely tend to uh, send them our way, and we're happy to see them. Uh, when we have patients from the Middle East, where they're from, you know, uh, we have a lot of uh, physicians from the Middle East. So, you know, they are also sometimes... We love keeping our every patient that we can if they want, but sometimes communication is hard. We don't get, you know, so the, the options are offered to see if they prefer somebody that speaks the language and all that. It makes a huge difference. You'd be amazed. Right. I've had patients refer to me because of, I don't know, passing out. And when you talk to them in Spanish, it is nothing like that. It's completely different. So the fact that, you know, speaking to somebody that speaks the language makes a big difference. So, you know, even though we we don't have like a formal, let's say, cultural training or anything like that, I think we do get a little bit of an idea from interacting with our colleagues, the residents, the trainees. So you've taken it, you've taken it upon yourselves. Yeah, I think we're a little bit more yourself. sensitized to that because of it. So it makes makes it easier. But but even with that, it's not easy sometimes. You know, so then in those cases, if we can, we try to sort of, or we give the option to the patients of whether they prefer to be with somebody that speaks the language. And sometimes they are, sometimes they're like, no, I'm fine. It's great. So you're like, okay, then this is working out. Sometimes you just don't know. You wonder if you're, you know, if your patient is comfortable and all those things. And sometimes you cannot tell, uh, but when you ask and they're like, no, no, I'm happy with you, this and that, then you're like, okay, great. This yeah. is working out. So... You are one of our experts. You're in our expert voices series, and I do know, um, even though you're you're pretty humble about it, you won an award last year for teaching excellence. Correct? Yes. yes. Correct. So I'm curious um, how this is going to sound benign, but like, how do you feel about that? Because is that one of your goals as a physician is to be an excellent teacher? Um, and then also how you got that in the middle of a pandemic. So can you kind of talk about what that was? So I don't butcher what the award was and talk about your approach in, you know, in teaching as part of your job, or is it like, I'm a good teacher because I'm good at my job. You know what I'm saying? Like, just. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I get what you're saying. So first of all, I mean, I was pretty humbled by the award, to be honest. I was, uh, I was pretty excited about it. It was kind of unexpected. It was an award that is, um, I, I mean, it's it's a it's an award that's 
given in there's a lot of people, uh, I wouldn't say competing, but eligible for that. I think the most meaningful part is that this award was 100% related, you know, dependent on votes from the trainees themselves. So it's not like, oh, so-and-so said you're a great teacher. No, is the people you teach who choose. And so that made it very meaningful to me, actually. I, uh, I don't specifically aim or, or try, you know, okay, I, I got to be a great teacher. What can I, I mean, I do think about it, but I don't think about it in terms of winning an award. I think about it in terms of how do I make them you know, the best physician possible. I mean, like, uh, and I realize a lot of it is, as I said before, common sense. Just use your common sense. The other part is, as I said, I always tell, so, you know, I'll tell you what of my advice to trainees, whether they're fellows, residents, I said, look, guys, you come here and I tell them every time I start a rotation, every time I start, when they're reading, we start anything. I said, three things you need to keep in mind. Number one, as I said before, the main reason you're here is to help people. Keep that always in mind. And that means many different things, right? But every day you go to the hospital, remember, I'm here to help you. Let's, let me make sure I do that. If at the end of the day you say I help somebody, that's, that's a win. You know, that day you made something. Number two, you're here to learn, right? You're training, you know? So, you know, make sure that every day you learn something new. Don't wait. Don't be passive about it. Don't be, uh, don't wait for the teacher or the physician or the attending to tell you stuff. Look for stuff. You see a patient who has heart failure, go and read about heart failure. See what the medications are. What are, how do they present? And then when you talk to me, we can discuss. You are going to make it way more meaningful. So again, number one, make sure you help people. Number two, make sure that you learn something. And it's going to be, it sounds simple, but it can be challenging in busy days. You're running around, you're doing this, you're doing all that. So it can be challenging. Keeping it in mind every day helps. And number three, which I think is also really important is make sure you enjoy what you're doing. Make sure you have fun. Otherwise, you may not be able to get it through. You know, it is you're going to be doing this for a long time every day. So if you make sure that every day, whenever you do stuff, you're enjoying what you're doing and keep that in, you know, in your mind is going to make your life not only better, but it's going to make the rest of your objectives way more easy to achieve. So then, you know, I think that sets sort of the mindset and then the, you know, the interaction. I'm, I mean, I, Regardless of what my wife says about my interaction with the trainees, I'm actually pretty chill. I'm pretty <laughs> relaxed with them. Uh, and I tell well, them. It's also talking about when they call you at 2 a.m. Which like, Exactly. She, this is the only interaction she's heard. She, they call me at 2 and I'm like, what do you need? She's like, why are you so mean? I'm not mean. I'm going I'm to the point. This is not, you know. Uh, but I'm, I'm pretty open with them. And I always tell them that. And like, ask me anything you want. And I'm like, what's going on? This and that. But, but I'm also um, strict. I, I have high expectations. And I expect them to, um, you know, to do their best. I'm, I'm strict because I don't like people being lazy, especially, and this is the part that for me is key, is because we're dealing with the life of people. So you cannot be lazy, you know, I mean, uh, you cannot, you have to do due diligence, you have to work hard. So 
I always set those expectations with them. And then with that being said, I'm very open. I explain things as much as I can. They know they can ask me anything as long as they're, as long as they do, you know, what they're supposed to do. Um, and so, and I think, uh, I think they like it. And I think they learn a lot uh, when you have this open and fluid conversations with them, when you discuss cases, you know, live cases, I always tell them, okay, this patient, what do you think the patient has? Mm-hmm. Like, well, this and this, and like, okay, so let's talk about that problem or that, or that disease. You know, how is this diagnosed? What are the tests? You know, what are the medications you get for this? So they see the patient and then they put all these things together that before were kind of ethereal, you know, they were out there, but they're now they're seeing the patient. So, ah, okay, this is what they're mean, you know, and this is, so I think that actually is um, appreciated and, uh, well, and also your wife is not the one who's giving you a teaching excellence award. So yeah, she's not, yeah. I think, I don't know if I would get it. Well, I would also, I would also add in there that uh, your wife is a mental health counselor and you can don't talk to your clients by going, <laughs> what do you right. want? Yeah. Right. Yes. It's a, it's a different engagement. Completely different. Yeah. I mean, you, in some cases, your client is the patient but in other cases, your client yeah, is yeah. the fellow. And so interacting with the fellow is very different. You don't interact with your patients. By Why are you here? Like, what do you need? <laughs> Why are you, Why are no, you here? Never, never, never. <laughs> you never. know, you don't start, that's a different engagement than if you were teaching someone, particularly like if you talked about this or whatever, and then you're just like, <laughs> yeah. what? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a different, different interaction. Different yeah, a, approach to working out. So as we, you know, we are wrapping, as we come to a conclusion, because we don't, I could talk to you forever and we have so, but um, like you have so much information in your, in your head and your experience. So we'll definitely have to have you back on, but I don't want to keep you here forever. Um, We're going to wrap up, but first, because the episode we actually just released today is our resident therapist. We have her on every single season and she's from Colombia, okay or she's a first generation from and her her i think kali her mom is from kali her dad is from bogota something like that oh really wow. yes uh and she's here in oak park but we have to ask because it's hot off the presses what is your reaction to encanto oh my god i love <laughs> encanto i love that movie i loved it so much Talk about like, what, what did you feel? What were some of your, cause we're talking about cultural connections, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, the movie just touches on so many things that are so ingrained in Colombian culture, but they're very, I mean, some of the things are subtle. Some of the things that are, you know, touched in the movie have actually a really deep meaning, but they're like, so for example, I don't know if you realize, but you know, the family, which is one of those typical, you know, I don't know if just Colombian, but in general, Latin American, Latin American families where there's a sort of a matriarch, you know, and like, um, uh, you know, the family actually comes from something that is, you know, uh, or was unfortunately quite common in Colombia, which was a family that was displaced by violence. I mean, I mean, you know, they are, going somewhere and then there's violence people come and they actually lose the husband of the lady and then they have to flee the area and that is the first thing that like kind of struck me it was like wow because this is something that was 
it's very real or was very real. Let me just put it. Then the way they, I mean, the, the, the family dynamics are just crazy. You know, the, the sibling rivalries, uh, the way they interact with the whole town, you know, like where everybody just absolutely knows everybody and you're doing things for everybody. And, and, you know, the way they do like all the gossip and the family with the, you know, with the, with the sister that can hear a lot and everybody's like, don't tell anybody when he hears, like she hears about Bruno and move the, the camera and come back and she's already. Um, and, and then, you know, I just love the music, you know, the, the, the characters, I love them because there was like, I mean, you know, I have a friend, you know, her Vicky, right. And to me, she looks just like one of the characters. Look like Isabella. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the little kid with his curly hair, you know, like, I mean, I, I could just see all these characters being so when people ask me, how are Colombians? I'm like, I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of different types of mm -hmm. Colombians. But then watching the movie, I'm like, those are like, you know, kind of, that is very representative of Colombian culture. Well, and then you said you listened to it in Spanish where they had Colombian actors, not just Hispanic ac accents. Oh my God, that was the best part. Yeah, I bet that was amazing. That was the best part. You know my policy about accents. I, I sent my daughter to Colombia because I don't want her to speak Spanish. I want her to speak with the accent that we speak mm -hmm. with. Nice. And uh, so for me, that's big. And that was just, I think they just nailed it. It was amazing. Yeah. No. It was amazing. My daughter loves music, the music in both languages. Um, I like them both. But just hearing the voices in Spanish was like, oh, wow. What is it? No, no se habla de Bruno, <laughs> right? <laughs> no se habla, no se habla de Bruno. Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. We've been singing that song like forever in this house. It was such a, you know, I think in what we're, this is not, it's not just us, right? It's like, this is national. Everyone's talking about it in various different ways. The family dynamics, the generation, intergenerational, you know, the generational trauma, um, how, especially in immigrant families, certain people take on certain roles and that's what you do. Um, I just read some article today, which is like this, the Louisa character, the oldest sister is basically every oldest immigrant sibling ever. Absolutely. I was just about to take say Take care of everything. Do all, you know, you're like a second parent. Don't complain. Just take it, take it, take it. Take care of it. Yeah. Take it. And it's that, those kinds of similarities, I think, um, resonated so deeply with you know, families that have immigrant roots, even if they've, you know, been here for several generations to remember that and to feel that felt like, oh gosh, this is like, it just in a sad, but true way really encapsulated, but and, well, not always sad, some of the joy too, mm -hmm. the joy of being in a family like that, but also what's really hard in the being a family like that and sort of what people do when they've experienced some major loss to keep everyone else safe. Um, you know, mm -hmm. one thing I, Kosha and I talked about is like in that movie, there's no bad guy. No, there's no villain. Nobody. Yeah. Right. It's Abuela's doing what she's doing because she is trying to keep the family together. Everyone's doing what they're doing because they are trying to keep the family together. No one's like trying to break them apart. And yet, right. The sort of need to flex a little bit is, you know, what Marcel brings to it, which is like, Mary Bell. we can't just be in these rigid roles. Maribel, sorry. 
I know some of the yeah. Marisol's. <laughs> I was like putting it together. Um, Maribel brings to it, which is like, okay, but we need to, we need to let people be themselves, and we can't always just be in these rigid roles. Yes, and that's I feel like a you know looping it kind of a little bit back around to your work is that is a very immigrant approach. You do this, you do this, you do this. This is how we keep ourselves together and keep ourselves safe. Yeah. And, and safe, I think, you know, I, I hadn't thought about the idea. I mean, Colombia is kind of very deeply in, you know, that violence that, that happened. I mean, and it wasn't that long ago. I think that is also a lot of this trauma and this generational trauma is Mary Bella is 15 and Luisa is 20 or whatever. And Abuela is not that old, right? The parents are older, you know, they're, they're like our generation, they're 45 or 50 or whatever the triplets. So it's like that we're not talking about trauma that's happened, you know, 200 years ago, we're talking about 50 years ago and how, how raw that can stay when you just pass on that generational trauma and don't allow for healing also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very true of basically any country except for like Australia, New Zealand and Canada that came out of the British, you know, empire. I mean, India is very much in the same place. Our dad is 72 and he was born before partition, before the Indian independence movement, before partition. Dad's 74, but yes. Oh, I keep thinking he's 72. Well, I'm, yeah, he's okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> 47. That I'm just doing because the math is Koja, today you're correcting everybody today. <laughs> well, first of all, I've been right, but I'm saying I don't want people <laughs> to call you on it, be like, well, then he wasn't born before partition. He was born in 40s. I should have said he's in his mid-70s. There you go. Um, and he was born before partition and before all this stuff happened. And so that you know, even though it's not quite the same right it's my parents didn't have to flee but they did grow up with all kinds of violence around them um and were scared our grandparents brought brought you know them up with that kind of fear and trauma as well um and it does carry down but you know whether you're in a safe community or not yeah yeah absolutely i think it does and, and it does so it stays within a family. And as, as you as you mentioned, Coach, I think the key there is to allow for some healing. The problem is, you know, that means that uh, all the, like, I think, for example, in the case of the movie, you know, space for healing means that the family, starting from the, from the grandmother, like, she has to allow herself to be a little vulnerable at some point, you know, to open up, to allow for this. And that creates, and being vulnerable is something that she's like, no, no way. You know, we're going to stay strong. Well, because we've we've remained safe by not being vulnerable. By yeah. not being vulnerable. Exactly. We show that we're strong. We're good. The Mandrigal house is like here and we're like taking care of everything as usual. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's 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 quite prevalent in Colombian society that you have to. But because of, you know, when 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 we when we we've, we've talked about Colombia before, I told you like Colombians, we. We know how to have fun, I think, we, and we take that very seriously, but that is because it's, a, it's like a defense mechanism, in a way, to mm-hmm. cope and deal with all the other challenges that we have as a society. Mm-hmm. One of them being all the violence that was present for many, many years from, from, from you know, 
drug trafficking, from uh, guerrillas, from all these things that happened. Colonialism, push it back all the way far, yeah, right? We can even go, I mean, we can keep going back and whatever and bring it up all the way to recent times. Uh, but, you know, that's why I think one of the things we are very clear about, and that's why we love to go on vacation over there, is because, you know, we, we definitely take you know, having fun and enjoying life very seriously. Because you've you seen know. the other side, right? It kind of, you know, it's like, if you don't do that, then how are you going to deal with all this? You know, so let's make sure we enjoy life. We're just about at the end of our conversation. And I, you know, I know you've got a kid and a partner and you, you've got to work tomorrow and various <laughs> things. So we won't keep you too long. Um, Fellows and, to yell at to yell at. Yeah, at two o'clock. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and although this question is not directly related to Encanto, um, I will ask you, putting all the the previous all Encanto conversation aside, although it's a little bit related, I guess. What advice would you give to your former self, right? If you were at the beginning of your journey, or someone else is at the beginning of a journey, what advice would you give them about being a physician? working in a multicultural setting um, or like, you know, part of, and maybe this is how it connects with what you just said about like, Hey, how can you deal with all this stuff? If you don't have fun, what we are seeing now in a two plus year COVID world is that healthcare workers are exhausted. And so how do you keep, you know, how do you keep yourself from getting burned out um, and keep wanting to go back every day with helping the patient at the core of what you do, not just like check the box and move on. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, I, uh, you know, that's, it is a key question in my mind on how do you move forward through all this stuff that happens. I think, you know, when I think about it in my mind is simple, I would probably give myself or anybody else the same advice that I give to my trainees. I'd be keep focus on the important things and those to me are, I mean, I'm a healthcare worker. And so my main goal is make sure and remember always, and this is not easy because you go through so many things every day that it's easy to get lost. But remember that you're here to help people. As always, when, 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 I, when I'm in a lot of stuff, a lot of stress, whatever, you know, just remembering like, wait for a second, let me step back and remember, I'm just here to help people and I'm doing my as, as best as I can. That takes a lot of pressure out. Like, okay, you're doing, you know, you're doing the best you can to help people. And that puts things in, per in perspective. Because you're like, okay, yeah, that's good. The other thing is, you know, uh, and, and, in, and not just in medicine, not just as a physician, but what I tell the residents and the fellows is like, remember to learn something. Every day, make sure you learn something. It, it doesn't have to be about medicine, you know, about the universe, about, I don't know, spirituality, about, you know, whatever you history so that you don't repeat the same mistakes. But if you keep, you know, if you go through life and you try to, you know, every day learn something, you know, things uh, add up. So after some time, you probably learned a lot of stuff. And, um, and finally, and this is to me the most important part of the advice that I would give myself and anybody else is remember to have fun while you're doing it. We're enjoying it. Life is too short. You know, if you're not enjoying it, you might want to reconsider what you're doing. 
because um, when by the time you realize that you oh maybe you know I'm doing this so I can enjoy something so I can enjoy things later you know by the time later comes you might not be able to enjoy it if if later ever comes yeah so and it's not guaranteed right we're not guaranteed really, a later. I mean I don't know you know you're waiting for 15 years to get to later and then 14 years and a half and then you get you know I don't know bad disease you go on the street something happens you never know so enjoy the day Absolutely. That's great advice. And and as Kosha likes yes. to say, that's great advice for us all. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just say it every time. <laughs> every really? time, because like, you know, we've asked everyone, like, what advice would you give for yourself? And people always come out, regardless of who we talk to, people come out with some really, really great insights about their career or, you know, their path or what they've realized. And it's, it is in fact relevant to everybody, whether you're a healthcare worker, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, like it's all like, Remember to have fun, um, you know, try to learn something every day. Yeah, right. All these things are just- Like that's what, you know, we started asking for advice and and people, it's, it was started with people coming out. Like yeah. we had a whole, you know, season about uh, the LGBTQ spectra. And I kind of was expecting like, okay, so like be true to yourself or, you know, it's really hard to come out and, you know, things like that. But people were really, what we've noticed is, it's good advice for us all in terms of put yourself first because you can't put like you have to focus on yourself and put yourself first in order to be good to the world around you. It's like we're we're compiling a book that tells people how to live their best life and yeah. live their truth. Right. And so we appreciate that from you. And and the most ridiculous thing about it though is it's all like the most basic advice ever right this be true to yourself find people who love you and support you you know have fun learn something you know remember you're just trying to do your best all these sweet things you said yeah. and it's it's sort of like almost like what you hear in like kindergarten yeah right <laughs> and yet as adults we're like what I've, i need to earn this or i need to accomplish this or it's too much you know we sort of like spiral yeah, yeah, and you realize that that's useless. You know, I mean, not useless, but it's not as important. I mean, back to what we were saying before, it's, all, it's it seems so common sense, right? I mean, just you know, enjoy life, and you know, right. as you said, be curious, help people, be kind. Seems very <laughs> common sense, but it's surprising how uncommon common sense yeah. really is. Not so common it is. Like everything I need to know, I learned in Sesame Street. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So last question is always fun. It always makes us giggle. Um, it is the idea of familect, which uh, you and I have talked about before, but uh, the idea of like dialects within smaller circles, right? So it doesn't have to be, you know, between your wife and your daughter and you, but what kind of words or language would someone else, you know, walking into the room not understand? Do you have any of that that you use like at the hospital or when you go back to Columbia, any of that stuff? So, yeah, um, there are some things in, in Colombian general, not specific, maybe. Uh, there is, a, you know, uh, this thing with some uh, names in Colombia, which is kind of funny. And I think other people probably not understand it very much. Um, there is a name, for example, that is very common in, in the Pacific coast of Colombia, um, which is in, in Spanish it would be Usnavi, right? It would be spelled U-S-N-A-V-Y, right? Usnavi. 
And it's quite common. And we were like, well, I mean, I don't know where that name, I mean, it's kind of unusual. And then we realized- Does it have a meaning? Does it, like, it doesn't mean anything. It's not a word. It doesn't mean anything in Spanish. It doesn't mean anything. And But when we asked, we realized that that was a name given to people in that area because the ships coming from the U.S. and going into port in the Pacific, <laughs> they set on the side U.S. Navy. <laughs> and people were like, oh, that looks great. I'm going to make my daughter very fancy, you know, like we're <laughs> going to name her Usnavi. And I was like, and it's actually quite common nowadays. It's a oh very common gosh. name That's in that area awesome. of the Pacific. It is, uh, yeah, it is actually hard to believe, you know, it's one of those that you're like, but yeah, Usnavi. <laughs> I, so there yeah, you go, you know. One. That's a really good one. Also, like Brian, my husband, you, you and Brian are very good friends. And there is, Brian is a name in Colombia. Oh, yeah, yeah. Brian is a name, but Brian as Brian really doesn't exist. Right. You know, you know, B-R-A-Y-A-N is not a name in Colombia. It's more like a B R A L L A N. So it'll be Brian. And we don't call him Brian. We call him El Brian, like the Brian, like El Brian. You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, that's actually, the, that is the name of our text group. That is the so name of that our is text Fanilac. group. Yes. It is actually, <laughs> yeah. So if you ever, if you're ever in Colombia, you're probably going to hear, Hey, Brian, come yes. over. Or Usnavi. Well, that is Usnavi. good. Usnavi. That's really good. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have been wonderful, wonderful as I knew you would, but, um, just, Two hours. I mean, I can't believe it's been two hours, but um, I can't believe it's been two hours. Yeah. And I think we learned so much more about, I think, culture than even cardiology. And um, yeah. and I appreciate that very much. Well, I loved hearing about the combination of cultural understanding and its application to medicine, right? That it's not just like clinical sounds really cold, but clinical can be warm when you're talking about co combining the human part of serving people. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's such a, like, you don't, you're right. You don't hear that very often, particularly in private practice. Cause so many people are like, I'm on the clock and yeah, absolutely. Right. And if I don't, if I don't see people, either I lose money or like, I have to stay late to do all my charting or whatever. Right. So yeah. it cuts into people's time, personal or professional. And so to hear like, you work for a nonprofit hospital, you're kind of, you know, you're, there's no profit. <laughs> there's different. Yeah. This it's, there's different challenges. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. like, uh, Absolutely. But uh, yeah, I mean, and this is something that I, because of coming from different cultures, I'm kind of passionate about. I mean, I'm actually a member of the diversity and inclusion committee for the American society of nuclear cardiology. Oh. And so you see all these things, like they, at the end of the day, they're all about the same, like understand people who come from different backgrounds, include them, embrace them. And then, you know, everything else would be more simple. Mm, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Your patients are lucky to have you, sir. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, I'll let them know that you said that. I'm yeah, gonna be, I sir, you're lucky to have me. Kosha said so. What yeah. I would suggest you do is when you walk in, don't say hi to anyone. Hand them a copy of your teaching certificate, and and yeah. and then you can play them the little clip. Of course, you're saying your patients are lucky to have. Yeah, you. exactly. I, I like it. You know, it'll create the right mindset <laughs> yeah, and make exactly. it all further. 
Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. We've really enjoyed this. You have a wonderful day. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. I loved it. Thank you very much.